Take two, Jesus. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network, and at ETC Pod on Twitter. My mom says it won't last. Your mom's an alcoholic. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. That's Todd Todd-Zilla. Todd-Zilla X-Pod. Howdy, Zilla Files. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Todd-Zilla X-Pod. Escapingthecave.com. Also, get me over the uh, ChristopherMedia.net network. Hello. How you doing? Having a good week? It's Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. Very early morning hours, as always. And I'm going to give you a fair warning here. I don't know how this one's going to go. I'm getting sick, if you can believe that. I never get sick, particularly in August. <laughs> no. I may, you know, come down with a cold, something like that, in the wintertime. I don't remember the last time that I got sick in the summer. I feel it coming on, man. It's like I just feel weird. get dizzy for no reason, just sitting there like I'll turn my head really fast, and all of a sudden I'm lightheaded. So this may suck. But, I thought about putting it off for a few days, sort of letting that last marathon, that last opus of mine, a two-hour and 29-minute podcast, whatever it was, <laughs> sit there. And people sort of marinate on that for a bit, but I, I, it occurred to me that if I do that, and I actually do get sick, then it's probably going to be another week before I get one of these things out, and I don't want to have, you know, 10 days, two weeks between podcasts. That's just not good. I prefer not to. So I'm going to try to knock this thing out today, and um, you know, you never know. Sometimes these things, when you you sit down and you feel like you've got it all planned out, you're all ready to go. Sometimes they just turn out like shit. And sometimes when you sit down, you don't really know what the hell's going on. Have no clear plan, no clear cut path through the podcast woods. They turn out really good. It's sort of a crapshoot sometimes. So I'm going to hope for the latter, uh, because uh, yeah. No more two-hour and 20-minute podcasts. I've decided that. That was a conscious decision. It was an executive decision not to break that last one up into two episodes. I kind of wish now that I had, but I wanted to keep all of that material together instead of releasing one and then having you know somebody listen to it one day, having to wait two more days for the rest of the information. I, I, when, I, when I put it together, I thought that was a better idea. That was too long. Oh my God, was that long. It was good. I mean, all the information in there, I, I, I really was looking forward to putting that together. Another reason that I kept it long like that was that I, I've been looking forward to doing that. That is going to be, information-wise, as far as this topic goes, that's going to be, could be possibly, maybe the big one. When you're talking about the need for propaganda, the addictive effects, and how it takes over everything dominates how you see the world, dominates how you see other people. It's hugely important. Today's was the second one. There was two that I was really, really looking forward to, and that's what I'm going to get to today. This one's on the ambiguity of the psychological effects of propaganda. Ambiguity is sort of ambiguous, right? (laughs) But it's really not. It makes a lot of sense once you get into it. One one thing I want to get to today, though, I'm, I'm following four people, four accounts, I should say, on Twitter. Notice I'm not mentioning my Twitter account anymore. I don't care if anybody goes to that fucking thing or not. It's just a dumping place. Just a place for me to put podcasts and maybe run into people over there in the Twitter sphere. I have come to hate that fucking platform. So anyway, I'm following four people. Three of them are ChristopherMedia.net accounts. right? Two podcasts and the uh, account itself. The other one is an actual human being. It's Andrew Sullivan. 
And I mentioned in the last podcast that unless you're detached completely, unless you're completely cut off, it's impossible to insulate yourself from either the original variety or sort of the Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary variety propaganda. Credit to Matt on that. This shit sneaks in like a virus in your fucking soup. It doesn't matter what you do. Unless you're completely detached, it will find its way to you like a fucking virus. Coming from the cook in the kitchen, it's going to get there. A case in point, man, I log on. I'm following four people. I log on to dump a podcast into cyberspace the other day, and Twitter's telling me, here, here are three people you might like. One's Rob fucking Ryder, meathead from Archie fucking Bunker, telling me how Trump's a fucking idiot. The next one's Scaramucci. And then some other guy ranting and raving about Trump. This is the Mary Mallon Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Jack variety of propaganda. Getting recycled and recycled and just uh, spit <coughs> here. Right? You cannot get the fuck away from it. It's not any better on Facebook. You got Typhoid Jack, and now you've got Typhoid Mark, Typhoid Zuckerberg over here on the other side. These people, these propaganda farting flesh bots, their farts are infected with a virus that finds you no matter what the hell you do. There's no solution to this. There is no way to get the hell away from it. And as soon as I saw Meathead talk about the last the beginning of the last episode, I'm like, oh my God, there goes, there goes the blood pressure. There, here comes the agitation. I didn't ask for it. I didn't go looking for it. Typhoid Jack spit it on me. What are you supposed to do here? I'm looking for an alternative here, another solution besides just cutting the fucking cord and just getting away from everything. How do you do it without having to be exposed to this carcinogen? There apparently is no way. And if I don't have it from Twitter and I don't have it from Facebook, I've got it from my fucking phone. Just randomly look down. Oh, there's a story from the New York Times on how Trump sucks. It's almost impossible to avoid this stuff. That's how they've got you. That's, it's part of the reason we're in the situation that we're in. Because if you're not paying any attention to it, if you're addicted to this stuff, you're addicted to the outrage. You've got a constant fucking stream of it. Like sitting in a microwave, and every now and then, you're inside of the microwave, and somebody walks by every now and then and flips it on the 30-second thing just to heat you up a little bit. Fuck with your head just a little bit. Make you hate somebody just a little bit more, just in case you forgot this hour to hate somebody. Here's something to hate. The last episode was important. The agitation propaganda episode may be just as important. I have a little bit. He touches on that a little bit in this one as well, uh, coming up later on. But it's fucking terrible. Terrible. The cognitive twitch that I talked about in one of my podcasts is the conditioned reflex. I must take action. I must, I must march to my Twitter or Facebook account and I must fight this. 
That is the conditioned reflex. It is a plague. And what it's doing to us, I think you got a pretty good idea what I'm talking about. Anyway, the transition from this was Andrew Sullivan because he is the one flesh and blood human being that I'm following still on Twitter. Talked about it last time. And he posted an article last week that talked about the boomerang effect. And he didn't go far enough. He blamed the left for a lot of this. I'll read a chunk of it. You'll see what I'm talking about. He didn't go far enough. Because I think the right has the same effect on the left that the left is having on the right when it comes to this binary, mutual, reactionary radicalization. This widening gulf between the left and the right. Between my camp and your camp, or your camp and that camp. Why we are coming to hate each other, and why, increasingly, both sides of the dialectic are just as deplorable as the other. And increasingly so. I, I know you can't see it on your side. doesn't matter if you can see it on your side or not. But it's almost like the one side, this side, is giving this side permission to be as vile as they want to. It's like the other side always sets the standard somehow for how deplorable you can be. Oh, do you like that word, lefty? Deplorable? Well, you're getting it. I'm throwing it at you. You're deplorable. Their deplorability has made given you permission to be deplorable. And then your deplorability is giving them permission to be even more deplorable. Like a game of atomic ping pong. Anyway, Solomon wrote an article about this. This is why I like him, because he's one of these, one of the very, very, very few people I think who can see things from a legitimately detached perspective. He he's admittedly, he talks about it in here. He's a multicultural conservative, is what he calls himself in here. Uh, so he admittedly has his uh, his beliefs, but he has a way, I think, of getting to the core of the problem better than pretty much anybody else that I know, at least in the media, at least as far as the, eh, I don't know if that's mainstream media. Yeah, he's all over the place. He does it very, very well. I'm going to read an excerpt of it uh, to sort of give you an example. He says that if you decide to change the ethnic composition of an entire country in just a few decades, you will get a backlash from the previous majority ethnicity. And if you insist that there is no differences, that there are no differences, rather, between men and women, you are going to generate male and female resistance. That kind of left radicalism will generate an equal and opposite kind of right reactionism. I've used that before. Newton's third law of extremism. And that's especially true if you define the resistors as bigots and deplorables and refuse to ever see that they might have a smidgen of a point. He continues on by saying, this is not to say that some of the resistors are not bigots, because you got to put that disclaimer in there, don't you? Not to say that some of the resistors are not bigots, just that no human society has been without bigotry, and that many others who are resistant to drastic change are just uncomfortable or nostalgic or afraid or lost. 
The left responds by reifying all resistance to radical top-down change as hate. Takes it as evidence that even more social engineering is needed. The right, in turn, radicalizes and starts to justify or excuse that kind of hate. He says it doesn't explain all of our current political predicament, but it captures some of it. He says he feels it in himself. He's a multicultural conservative, but when assaulted by the slur of, quote, white supremacist, because I don't buy Marcuse, whoever he is, my reactionism perks up. That smugness, self-righteousness, and dogmatism of the current left, he calls a miracle grow of reactionism. And my reactionism has most definitely perked up, just like his has, and then some. But that's it. That is the boomerang. He's talking about the boomerang. Binary, reactionary, radicalization. Atomic ping pong or tennis, however you want to look at it. Two sides, two magnets pushing each other apart with their radicalization, their assaults, their demonization of the other side. When you demonize the other side, it gives permission for the other side to become demons. You're going to call me a demon anyway, I'll be one. Then you see them doing that, you do the same goddamn thing. Well, if they're going to act like that, I'm going to act like this. Where the fuck are we going here? What kind of ride is this the fucking amusement park? Is it the one that crashes into a brick wall at the end? Because I want the fuck off. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we're going. This all ties into the stuff, the material that I've been using for the last couple of months. Because there's an industrial complex around this that's monetized the information that you're using to agitate both yourselves and them. Not to mention exploiting it, exploiting it in the power play, exploiting it in the Game of Thrones. They can get you riled up to hate them. That means they can get you riled up to support us. And beyond that, all the stuff that I've been talking about, particularly in the last episode, a little bit in this episode as well, is the means by which they provoke you into this state. They condition you into specific action. Today, these days, I think that state is twofold. I think it's a state of hatred or rage or anger, disgust for the other side. That's the agitation propaganda, but but I think the action, the tangible action that you have to take, that you simply must take, more often than not, I think what they're targeting is social media. They want you online. They want you online spreading their stuff. They want you to be Mary Mallon. They want you to be Typhoid Mary. Taking your disease, this disease of doctrine and propaganda, ideology, and coughing it into cyberspace so it infects, infects as many people as possible. That's the reaction they want. Do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I'm being a little dramatic here why would russia have targeted social media if that wasn't the case if you believe that there was a russian campaign to interfere with the election in 2016 you also understand that facebook was their primary means of doing it why because it works now you can point your finger at putin all you want to and yeah, it's, it's, it's vile to have a foreign state, especially that one, manipulating us in such a way. 
It's disgusting, but <laughs> what are you going to do about us doing it to ourselves? They're doing nothing. Nothing that we're not doing here willfully, happily. That conditioned reflex that I'm talking about, it doesn't have to be triggered by just the propagandist, just the, the creator of the propaganda. If you've got both sides doing this to both of their little camps in this binary situation, this bi- binary environment, how is it not possible, even likely, that an external actor can just poke and prod both of them themselves. The, the, the conditioned reflex is there. It doesn't care where it's getting the provocation from. As long as you're poked, as long as you're prodded, you're going to react. You're going to attack that other side with this regurgitated source of agitation propaganda. You're going to provoke your own side with examples of how evil and bad that side is. Does it really matter where it's coming from? Does it? Do you really think that the propagandist, the source, has some little secret code it has to type in for it to fuck with your head? Anybody can do this. Even a little snot-nosed teenager on 4chan. Anybody. And they can just sit back. And if you're that snot-nosed little teenager, they can giggle while they pick their nose and watch you go nuts. <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> Or if you're, you know, a Russian oligarch or president, you can use that to foment and provoke division and conflict within an enemy's border. The delivery system is right here. You're listening to my voice on it. The internet has connected everything globally now. Social media has put everybody in everybody else's front pocket. I used the analogy online not long ago. I haven't used it here, but I, I called social media accounts little broadcast radio stations. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter and on Facebook reach more people with their Twitter account than I reached at the height of my radio career on the most powerful radio station I worked at. These are little broadcast units. Yet there's no standard, there's no broadcast standard here. There's no FCC to regulate content on these broadcast devices. You can say whatever the hell you want with no accountability. You can do anything you want. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You don't care. It feels good. You've got the dopamine rush. You've got the superiority, the moral certitude, all the stuff I've already talked about. You just don't give a fuck. You don't see the consequences of this, but other people do. And other people see how they can manipulate this, how they can exploit this situation and this mindlessness of how easy it is. They can exploit how easy it is for them to just dump something into the ecosystem. You see it like, dump, 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 yeah, I like that. I'm going to share it. Click. Which is the equivalent if you've got, I don't know, 500 fucking Facebook friends or you've got 1,200 fucking Twitter followers of spending two weeks taking a propaganda poster from the center of Danzig and spreading it around to Nuremberg, Heidelberg, Munich, maybe Frankfurt. Think about that. Think about how easy it is to spread a meme, which is the contemporary version of a propaganda poster. How easy it is to take something dubiously crafted from someplace like 4chan or 8chan 
<laughs> or Moscow or the Ukraine. I like that. That's neat. <laughs> that made me giggle. Share. That's it. That's all you have to fucking do. And you're an unwitting agent of somebody who's trying to manipulate a population. Either with political intent, they just want to see people fight. It doesn't matter. The effect really is the same. You have no concept of that. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason you don't have a concept. (laughs) One of the reasons is not a very popular opinion. It's not a very popular thing for me to say because we're so, our dicks are so hard over this new technology. We're not ready for this at all. We were not prepared for any of this. We are children with lighters in fireworks factories with this technology. We do not have any concept of how explosive that shit we're lighting on fire really is. None. We're going to find out, though. That day is coming. I got a piece in here. I'm not going to bother with the rest of it. I've gone too long on this. But one of the things I said in this piece that I was going <laughs> to do for the open. <laughs> this and, uh, one of the things I said, though, is that as a result of this, as a result of being so mindless and so ill-prepared and undeveloped, immature, immature, lacking the maturity to responsibly handle this sort of technology and responsibility of having basically a little broadcast studio in our pocket 24-7 with an always tuned-in audience. The effects of that have to be massive at some point. We're already seeing it. And fuck climate change. Did you hear me? Fuck climate change. I'm sick and tired of hearing about, oh my God, in 20 or 30 years, the the earth is going to be fine. I have a really cool George Carlin bit I can play for you. The earth is going nowhere. We are. I don't want to hear about climate change. This, in my not-so-humble opinion, is a far greater, more immediate threat than glaciers melting. It may not matter in 20, 30, 40 years if the glaciers have all melted. We may have taken ourselves back to the Stone Age. Or we may be living in some weird, dystopian, tyrannical state because we have abandoned any ability to tell truth from falsehood and given ourselves over, given our minds over, to whomever will jerk us off the right way. I saw this thing today. We'll wrap this up. We got a lot to do. This isn't even it. But I saw this thing today about uh, climate change scientists and how they were having like psychological problems because nobody was listening to them. Nobody's listening. We see this this calamity and this catastrophe, this climatological apocalypse coming. And nobody's listening to us, and it's making us sad. It's making us anxious. We're suffering from anxiety, and we're depressed. I can relate to that. Except I think this. A cultural conflict. The ape at the ape's throat is a more immediate threat than climate change. Now, time will tell if I'm right. And if I am, I won't probably have the means to say, Ha ha, I told you so. Just put my face in your head if I am. Really, 
There aren't really too many people who really see this other than me. I, I understand exactly what these climate change scientists are, are talking about. And maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm fatalistic. Maybe I'm a doomsday. Maybe I'm just a cynic. I'm a negative Nancy. Could be. You better hope so. Listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast. <laughs> EscapingTheCave.com, ChristopherMedia.net. Those are the websites. Gotta go check out the other casts over there. Chris would appreciate it. I forgot how this song went. I think that's good. Come on, get to it. Looks like you're my heart You see, I'm never right. going to break you. That's your 80s uh, bumper. The request today uh, actually was requested. I didn't realize this. Rich was, uh, I knew Rich was in a bunch of bands. I didn't realize he was in a hair band. Uh, he's a real big fan of uh, Bullet Boys. Was he said it was his favorite song for like years? You see Rich doing this for that voice. I can see it. Come on, Rich, do the hook. He's got some great pictures of his time in the uh, hairband scene. He's wearing these leotards that kind of look like Striper, like yellow and black. And Rich is a, he's a good-looking guy. He looks really good dressed up like a bumblebee. There you go, Rich. Hope you enjoyed that. It is the Escape the Cave podcast. I'm your congenial host, Todd. Apparently being sick makes me a little cranky. Ooh, whisper, whisper. Rock it up. Come on, Rich. Do that solo. Be careful of what you ask for. I do take these requests seriously. Anyway, what we're talking about today. Oh, this is a fun transition. I am the master of the segue going from smooth up in ya to Jacques Lul, the French philosopher who wrote the book Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes. The link will be in the uh, description of the podcast, by the way. I highly recommend reading this book. I'm doing the best I can with this. I didn't intend to go into this this deeply. I don't have a syllabus. I'm going out of order. It probably would be better for you if you really, really, really want to um, get this material as best you can to read the book. I will have it in all of these episodes in the uh, descriptions if you want to go get it on Amazon. It is there. But what we're talking about today is from that book, Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, Jacques Ellul, the author, and this section is on the ambiguity of psychological effects. This wraps up the, uh, the psychological effects of propaganda chapter. All of these have been individual sections. 
But when he's talking about the ambiguity of psychological effects, he's talking about the great confusion and uncertainty to which we are led. There are contradictions inside of propaganda that create confusions and uncertainty. Contradictory psychological results aside from satisfying certain needs while arousing others. I talked about that. He says propaganda can simultaneously create some tensions and ease others. All right. Responds to the need of the individual in our society who lives in an unhealthy state of anxiety. Consoles and helps him to solve his conflicts. Explains the world for him. You need to remember, it also creates anxiety and provokes these tensions. This is Twitter. This is Facebook. Providing the illusion of action as well. It's creating these anxieties, provoking these tensions, giving you a source, an outlet. Facebook and Twitter are the illusion of action. You can lash out in response to these, this state of anxiety and this tension. And he says, particularly after a propaganda of fear or terror, the target is left in a state of emotional tension which cannot be resolved just by kind words or suggestions. Oh, it's okay. It's all right. No, it's not. I need to do something. Only action can resolve the quote-unquote conflict into which he was thrown. Action. In the same way, purely critical and negative propaganda, let me repeat that, I think I transitioned too quickly. In the same way, purely critical and negative propaganda acts to antagonize the individual against his environment, plays on and stimulates instinctive, instinctive primal feelings of aggression and frustration. Instinctive feelings of of aggression. And with that, the effect can be only one of two things. Either the individual will become more aggressive toward the symbol of authority in his group or in his culture, or he's going to be crushed by anxiety, reduced to passivity because he cannot stand discord and opposition. This could be what Chris referred to last month as the exhausted majority. The propagandist must try to find the optimum degree of tension and anxiety. Yes, there is a little balance there, a happy balance, from his point of view anyway. And this was expressly, specifically stated by, among others, Goebbels. So one cannot say, you cannot say with any intellectual honesty, that this tension created by propaganda is an accidental psychological effect of the propaganda itself. It's intentional. They know what they're doing. They want you provoked. It is state attention so they can provoke you to action, an action they desire, at least in a direction toward the proper target. The propagandist knows exactly what he's doing when he acts this way, when he works in this direction. According to Goebbels, anxiety is a double-edged sword. Too much tension can uh, produce panic, demoralization, disorderly, and impulsive action. All right. While, on the other hand, too little tension does not push people to action. They remain complacent. They adapt passively. 
You remember when complacency was a problem? <laughs> problem in quotes. Was it really? Maybe. We'll get to that in a bit. It's necessary to reinforce anxiety in some cases. He uses the example concerning the consequences if the army is defeated. A military defeat. In other situations, it's necessary to reduce tensions that become too strong for people to handle by themselves. He uses the example of Britain during the war with air raids. That's too much. I use the example of this. <laughs> the post-2016 election. I'm going to get to more on this in a little bit. But uh, right after the election in 2016, after Trump was elected, something happened to the Democrats. Something, I've heard this repeatedly, I have felt it. There is something collectively that happened to the Democratic supporters. Democrat supporters. They were fractured, broken, devastated by the realization that they lost to that. It did something to them. Anime, hopelessness, all of that stuff was there for, for probably three months after that election. All you have to do, if you're having trouble remembering, I'm not because I was out on the road and I was sitting in a subway station watching the news coverage the next day. I was watching all of these people come in on their way to work after the election reacting because that's all anybody was talking about. You could tell who voted for who or who supported who. Trump supporters were gloating out there in Colorado Springs. <laughs> we showed them libtards, didn't we? I heard that more than once. While the Clinton supporters looked at the television and didn't say a fucking word. They just lowered their head, walked up and got their cold cut combo or whatever, and sort of slunk out. You could tell they were defeated. They were broken. I got more on this. Let me, let me do this right now. I'm going to put my little tinfoil hat on here for a minute. We're all thinking about the Mueller investigation, how they found no evidence of collusion with the Russians in that election. Huh. Well, three months of Democratic hopelessness moving forward. They're in danger of these people withdrawing from the political process, withdrawing into their turtle shell, as Alul calls it, focusing on their own damn lives getting out of the political activism that they had been immersed and involved in throughout the entire election cycle because of this crushing defeat. They might need something to reanimate them. Might. I'm just saying, could be. Huh. How convenient was the Russian collusion investigation? Now, if you believe in coincidences, <laughs> I personally... I don't know. I'm not saying anything definitively, but it wouldn't surprise me. All that stuff that Rachel Meadow was concocting on her show, all of these fictions, all of these little conspiracies. You think I'm being conspiracy theorist? Did you watch the Rachel Meadow program in 2017 after that election? <laughs> oh, my God. You would have thought that Donald Trump had vodka instead of blood coursing through his circulatory system. None of which, by the way, was borne out in the investigation. Now, you can put your little conspiracy hat on yourself now and say, oh, he, didn't, he wasn't looking for it, he's a stupid, whatever. Oh, what the fuck ever. 
I do remember everything that was said, though, all of these conspiracies coming from the left about how Donald Trump was literally a Russian agent all the way up until the Mueller report was released, and even a little bit after that. And I also remember the difference in the psychology of my former comrades in the resistance. They were devastated. Devis fucking tated until right around the first of the year. Maybe the middle of December. I don't remember the exact dates, but something happened. And it had to do with Donald Trump and Russia. Something injected not only life. It reanimated them to the point that they were more energetic than they were before they lost that election. Now, say what you want. Think what you want, and I am not making any accusations here. I'm not saying anything definitive, but I am saying, boy, that was handy. Especially considering the state of mind that that entire collective political group was in in the fall of 2016. If you're a Democrat, if you're a liberal, you supported, actually supported the Democratic Party, the progressive cause in 2016, and still do, you remember what you felt like, say, end of November. And then compare that to how you felt when you felt your resistance party, the noble Democrats, fighting against this Russia, this evil Russian collaborator. In the White House, you were energized. I'm just saying, that was handy. From their point of view, don't you think? I feel like I should have some Alex Jones music playing beneath me. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. The ambivalence of propaganda creating tension in some cases and reducing it in others is explained by the distinction, this is important, I'm going to say this again. This is so important, I'm going to start this over. The ambivalence of propaganda creating tension in some cases and reducing it in others is explained by the distinction between agitation propaganda, much more on this coming, and integration propaganda. Flip sides of the same coin in some cases. Agitation propaganda, what does it do? It aims at rapid, violent action. It must arouse feelings of both frustration and conflict, also aggression. Aggression leading individuals to action. It's one of the most dangerous things you can do. It's also one of the most dramatic forms. It's the most dramatic form of propaganda. And it unleashes hatred. It is my thesis that that's what we are awash in today. Agitation. Propaganda. Frustration. Conflict. Aggression leading individuals to action. It's really difficult for me to claim that you can be looking at anything going on in this country right now, even in other countries, and think that we are not engaging in that in a bilateral way. That's all I'm going to say about that for right now. I have much more coming on this. The flip side of agitation propaganda is integration propaganda. This, on the other hand, seeks man's conformity with his group, including participation in action. Integration integration propaganda is conformity propaganda. It will aim at the reduction of tensions, adjustments, 
to the environment and acceptance of the symbols of authority. Now, I want you to pay attention for this. I've explained agitation propaganda. I've, ex- I've explained integration propaganda. These two things can overlap. For example, a revolutionary political party, such as the communists or the Nazis, would employ propaganda of tension toward things outside the party. Agitation propaganda. Propaganda of acceptance with respect to the party itself. This explains the attitude of universal acceptance of all that is said or done in the party and the opposite attitude of universal challenge and rejection to everything outside of it. Do I even need to point this out to you? We are living in a binary system of agitation and integration propaganda. Agitation at the bad guys, integration toward the good guys. You, your group, integrate, conform. We are with God. We're noble, we're righteous, they're evil. This is the foundation of pretty much every fucking network. Every single one of them. Every, even NPR. Every single one of them. This is the foundation. I'll get into this later in that episode. But this is television news. And in fact, you watch pretty much any program on any television network, any cable news network, you're going to see both in the same broadcast, often put next to each other to contrast the difference between our good and their evil. They're going to hit you with a combination of a left and right hook. Them bad, us good. And you won't even see it. You won't even see their hands move. They're going to hit you with that so quickly. Agitation and integration propaganda. They want to provoke you to feel hatred toward them while reinforcing the righteousness of their own position. And theoretically, your position, because you're watching their network. Watch for this. Pay attention to this. Look for it. It's everywhere. Everywhere. It's also probably why you're not able, or we are not able, typically anyway, to go watch the enemy's propaganda stream. Their network. Because the roles are reversed. The stuff you're hearing from them demonizes your group. Oh my God, I can't have that while using the integration stuff against the group you hate. Powerful shit. Look for it with the love of God. All right, also connected is the second contradiction, according to Mr. Alul, and that is that uh, propaganda creates self-justification and a good conscience while... At the same time, you're going to love this, guilt feelings and a bad conscience. Hmm? Oh, this is so obvious. Propaganda develops strength when it furnishes the individual a feeling of security and righteousness. Sure. But propaganda also stimulates these guilt feelings, Whitey. I apologize for my gender. 
I'm guilty. You with me here? Its principal objective when it addresses a hostile group seeks to deprive the enemy of confidence in the justice of its own cause, his country, his army, and his group. Deprive the enemy of confidence. The man who feels guilty loses his effectiveness and his desire to fight, even for himself. To convince a man that those on his side, if not he himself, commit moral and unjust acts, is to bring on the disintegration of the group to which he belongs. This type of propaganda can be made against the government, the army, the country's war aims, or even the values defended by an individual's party or his nation. This is the propaganda of insurgency. But it can also be made with respect to mere efficiency. A little weird here. Uh, To convince the individual of the inadequacy of the means, the methods, employed by his group, or the uncertainty of his group's victory, or the inability of its leaders. It all has the same effect. Demoralization. Also, propaganda can create a bad conscience in this way, strange as it seems, probably because of its connection with the primitive belief that God makes good triumph over evil. That the best man wins, that might makes right, and that what is not effective is neither true nor just. You erode confidence. There's a primal sense inside of us that God isn't on your side. Of course, the psychological effects sought varies according to the audience propaganda targets. In any event, uh, propaganda creates a good conscience among its partisans and a bad conscience among its enemies. So, what's the, what's the point of demonizing men, demonizing white guys? Eroding the confidence, the dignity of whitey. According to Mr. Alul, if I'm reading this correctly, it's to create a bad conscience among its enemies. Why would white guys be considered an enemy? Because you need a demon. You need an internal target. An internal target of evil that you're righteously fighting. This is the moneyed bourgeois in the old Soviet Union. The target that everybody could hate. That's the target that's fueled by the cosmic god of social justice. Abstract social justice. Subjective social justice. White privilege. The white male devil. Yeah, my buddy down there in Mexico, I apologize for my gender. How did they get to you? How did they beat you down so much where you're going to walk up to a random lesbian and apologize for your entire fucking gender, half of the global population? That's a bad conscience. A bad conscience among their enemies. It worked. You can also attack national narratives this way. That's pretty self-explanatory, I think. 
He says the last effect will be particularly strong in a country or a group already beset by doubt. I consider this a subgroup. (laughs) White men in the liberal camp who have read too much Howard Zinn already beset by doubt. I'm bad. I'm dirty. (laughs) That's why it's effective. It doesn't really work on conservative guys. Why is that? Conservative guys, it's the one thing that I have, the one thing that I have really hardcore in common with conservative dudes is they see this shit as ridiculous as I do. Why is that? It's because liberal dudes, liberal whitey, liberal de Blanco, has been beaten down by the propaganda. It's been eroding their confidence, their self-worth, imbuing them with a sense of guilt for years and years. And they've internalized, yeah, yeah, I'm bad. I'm dirty. I'm sorry. Go ahead and whip me. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Will you fuck me now? I won't be obliging that. He uses the example of a propaganda of bad conscience succeeding, he says, admirably in France in 1939. I'm assuming World War II. Uh, even more so at the beginning of 1957 in connection with the Algerian conflict. This is interesting. When it created a general feeling of guilt sustained by campaigns on torture, colonialism, and the injustice of the French cause. Something that was characteristically French. The feeling created by propaganda, which was actually, remember it's always based in truth, actually partially legitimate, was the essential cause of the victory of the FLN, whatever that was. But it was a purely psychological victory, confirming the tenets and the conclusions of Chairman Mao. (sighs) About the use of propaganda. A third contradiction, he says, in certain cases, propaganda is an agent of attachment to the group, an agent of cohesion, while in other cases, it is an agent of disruption and dissolution. It can transform the symbols of a group into absolute truth. Inflate faith to the bursting point. Lead to a communal state and induce the individual to completely confuse his personal destiny with that of the group. Often occurs with war propaganda demanding, quote, national unity. Propaganda can also destroy the group. It can break it up. How, you ask? Well, he answers that. For example, by stimulating contradictions between feelings of justice and feelings of loyalty. I could just keep using the same example over and over again, couldn't I? Also, by destroying confidence in the accustomed sources of information. Fake news! Fake news! Faux news! Faux news! This is the thing that got me about Trump. This is when I knew this fucker was dangerous. That was one of the first things he attacked. When he entered the campaign, one of the very first things he did was start attacking the media as fake news. He started undermining confidence in the accustomed sources of information, thereby making him, to his followers and supporters, the sole minister of truth. It also acts by modifying standards of judgment, exaggerating each crisis and conflict. (laughs) Well, looking at you now, lefties. 
or by setting groups against each other. And then the next line I typed up is, holy fucking shit. Stimulating contradictions between feelings of justice and loyalty, destroying confidence in the accustomed sources of information, modifying standards of judgment, exaggerating each crisis and conflict, or by setting groups against each other. I'll let you marinate on that while I take a drink of coffee. Also, he says it's possible to provide successive stages for the individual. I got a kick out of this. While still a member of the group, propaganda can introduce ambiguity, doubt, and suspicion. But the individual can't stay in that situation for very long. It's difficult. Ambiguity is painful. So what does he do? He can't escape it by returning to his previous certainties and total blind allegiance to his former group. Oh no. What's he got to do? That's impossible. Right? The doubt introduced can no longer be uh, dissipated while the individual remains in the original context of values and truths inside the doctrine, inside the ideology. Can't do it. Can't put that genie back in the bottle. Mm-mm. Can't be a believer no more. So, what's he do? By going over to the enemy group, by compliance with what provoked the ambiguity, the man escapes the ambiguity. Oh. He will then enter into an absolute allegiance to the, quote, truth of the enemy group. Compliance will be all the more radical, his fusion with it all the more irrational, because it is a flight from yesterday's truth, and because it will have to protect him against any return to, memory of, or nostalgia for the former allegiance to that group. Then he says, it's a great example, there is no greater enemy of Christianity or communism than he who was once an absolute believer. Yeah. That's what your friendly, congenial neighborhood Tonzilla has to look out for these days. Ah, I think I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. Then one last type of contradiction. says, according to circumstances, propaganda creates either politicization, politicization, (laughs) or what American sociologists call privatization. This is pretty interesting. Uh, First, propaganda must lead the individual to participate in political activities, devote himself to political problems. That's the point of propaganda, right? Participate in political activities. Take action. Devote himself to political problems. Take action, right? Activized. An activist. Action. Activist. Oh, hey, they, they sound similar. This can only be effective if in the man it reveals the citizen. And if the citizen has the conviction that his destiny, his truth, and his legitimacy are linked to political activity, even more that he can fulfill himself only in and through the state-slash-party-slash-ideology. Only in and through the state-party or ideology. And that the answer 
to his destiny lies only in politics. Go ahead and um, grab a piece of paper real quick. Homework assignment. Write down everybody you know who falls into that category. Do, 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 do. Ah, you're not going to have enough time, are you? At that moment, the man is a Borg. My word, Borgs weren't around back in 1965. Man is a Borg. He's perfectly prepared to submit to every propaganda foray. These are extremists. These are our Puritans. This is ISIS. This is Westboro. This is Jonestown. Their destiny, thus allegiance, unquestioningly tied to their glorious leader or their political-slash-ideological scripture and their eventual Messiah. Jimmy Jones at Jonestown, baby. These are the fanaticized zombies. This is the albino terrorist in contact. The next chunk is a little weird. I almost left this out, but I'm going to throw it in there. I have one particular example in my head. But propaganda's success also requires that the individual progressively lose interest in his personal and family affairs. To sacrifice his wife and children to a political decision becomes the ideal of the political hero. And that sacrifice will, of course, be justified as being for the common good for one's country or some such symbol. Personal problems. Your day-to-day life then seems minuscule, egotistical, mediocre. I have a specific example of mind here. Uh, but I think we've seen this a lot. Sacrificing your family for politics. That's seen as the political ideal. You're having a split within your family. You're not talking to each other because of political differences or your political fanaticism or maybe theirs. And that's seen as the ideal of the political hero. Oh, way to go. You've got your priorities straight. It's justified as being for the common good for one's country or some such fucking symbol. Your priorities are out of fucking whack. You are a fanatic at that point. Negative or positive doesn't matter. If you're a fanatic against somebody and you're sacrificing your family and your personal life for it, doesn't matter. It's no different than being a, a positive fanatic and alienating yourself from really important people like your family because you support something. There is no different. The result is the same. The fanaticism is, in my view, the same. And how many people do you know who are really against that and not for that? Those two things usually go hand in hand, don't they? Don't they? Don't they? He says propaganda must always fight against privatization. The feeling that leads man to consider his private affairs as most important and produces skepticism toward the activities of the state, party, or ideology. The feeling that leads a person to consider his private affairs, his personal life, as more important, most important, and thus produces skepticism toward the party or ideology. This is the One Miche. I wish I do not know how to say this. It's, it's O-H-N-E, first word, Misha, M-I-C-H-E, ideology. I mentioned this in another episode. This ideology, uh, he says, was rife in Germany after 1945. And basically what it boils down to is a conviction that all is useless. To vote means nothing. That it's not worthwhile to die for Danzig. 
Propaganda has absolutely no effect on those who live in such indifference or skepticism. One of the great differences between propaganda before and after 1940, he says, was that in Western countries, after 1940 apparently, according to him, they were forced to face skeptical and privatized individuals. This is the exhausted, frustrated majority again, I think, here in this country right now. I have asked this question before. How can a person not be somehow cynical in this day and age? How can they be tethered to reality and not be cynical in some way, shape, or fashion? I mean, aside from total detachment, skeptical cynicism may be, is it, the only protection here? Do the cynics have it right? He doesn't think so. I'll get to that. A modern state slash party slash ideology can function only if the citizens give it their support. And that support, he says, can be obtained only if privatization is erased. If propaganda succeeds in politicizing all questions, succeeds in arousing individual passions for political problems, and succeeds in convincing men that activity and politics is their duty. That's how the state and party and ideology can function. says that churches often participate in campaigns without understanding that the propaganda, which are designed to demonstrate that participation in civic affairs is fundamentally a religious duty. Here's the contradiction. At the same time, and just as strongly, propaganda is an agent of privatization. I, I suspect a lot of this is going to smell familiar to you. It's an agent of privatization, and it produces this effect sometimes accidentally, while other times deliberately. Privatization occurs in the phenomenon of withdrawal and skepticism when two opposing propagandas work on the same group with almost equal force. How many of you have been privatized? Or are trying to be privatized? Trying to privatize yourself to escape the bullshit? That's privatization. But the problem here is that the privatization effect is involuntary. You want to be involved somehow, but you're being pushed out because you keep getting hit from the bullshit from the left and the bullshit from the right. You have a sense of responsibility and duty, but you have nowhere to go. Involuntary privatization. In many cases, propaganda deliberately seeks to produce this privatization to get you out of the political process. For example, a propaganda of terror seeks to create a depressing effect on the opponent, leads him to adopt a fatalistic attitude. They must be made to believe that nothing helps, that the opposing party or army is so strong that no resistance is possible. And this I'm going to take back to right after the election in 2016, the Democrats' state of despair and hopelessness. In that couple of months after Trump was elected, the demoralization falling into the abyss. And again, when the Russian investigation launched, it energized and reanimated this demoralized army slash mob. <laughs> yeah, it's like, give me something to believe in or give me something to hate. Boom, re-energized, reanimated. It's alive, it's alive. He says in this connection, an appeal to a withdrawal into private life is used when it's used intentionally. A feeling is aroused that one risks a meaningless death. 
which is a decisive argument of privatization propaganda. Why are you going to bother with this, man? It's going to fail, and then you, you just, what'd you do? You're going to die living a meaningless life. These arguments are useful for paralyzing an enemy, making him to give up, forcing him to give up and withdraw into what he calls egotism himself. They are equally valid in political or military conflict. He says one aspect of privatization propaganda by the state party or ideology seems even more important to him. (laughs) And this is the flip side of it because it sounds great. Just get out, man. Just forget all this bullshit, right? Well, it creates a situation in which the state then has a free hand because the citizenry is totally uninterested in political matters. It can do what it wants. This is the complacency we all hated back around 2000. Remember that? For 9-11, for George Bush. I can't believe you're so complacent. How do you not pay attention to Alka? Yeah, there's, uh, what's, what's his name? Ralph Nader. He made his way, I think, at the t- into the end of a Rage Against the Machine video. If you don't tune into politics, politics will turn on you. That was a message that was a statement to complacency. We've gone the other way now. Last 20 years, we have gone completely in the other direction. Now we're not, I don't think we're complacent enough. I think we take this shit too seriously now. But that's the danger of privatization. That's the danger of checking the fuck out. And we know this instinctively. I've had conversations with several people about this. Because if you and I, the people who aren't really being suckered in by either of these uh, fanatical puritanical camps, if you and I check out, who's left? Who guides the ship? If we jump overboard, who's driving the ship? The fanatics, the extremists, or God knows what else. And that is one of the goals, sometimes. Maybe not now, maybe not today. I think maybe partially, sure. Maybe there's an element of that somewhere. I'm not really looking for it, but that is an intentional goal, sometimes, of a propaganda campaign looking to force people into privatization to get the fuck out of the place. It's, it's political suicide. Jumping off a cliff. You don't matter anymore. You are not a factor. Now I can do whatever the fuck I want. One of the most remarkable weapons of the authoritarian state, Alul says, is propaganda that neutralizes and paralyzes its opponents, or all of the public opinion, by repeating a simple set of truths, such as that the exercise of political power is very complex and must therefore be left to the professional politicians, that participation in political controversy is dangerous, so what good does it serve? And uh, why should individuals involve themselves where power is exercised in the name of all and in the public interest? Individuals then receive their comfort, their sense of well-being, and their sense of security from the state because it alone can plan ahead and organize. Daddy state. Yeah, we got it. It's cool. Go plant potatoes. This kind of propaganda is easy in an authoritarian system because privatization is a spontaneous reaction of the individual when there is disharmony between him and the leader of the group. (laughs) Individual protects himself by privatizing. The skepticism towards the state, the party, the ideology is then justified in his own eyes by the actions of the state, the party, or the ideology. 
but it is propaganda which sustains his attitude of privatization and skepticism, leaving to the government complete freedom to act as it wants. You stay out of the business of government, okay? We got this. The quote-unquote reasonable appeal of such propaganda will be heeded quite readily because, ready for this, in general, man does not like to assume responsibilities. Man does not like to assume responsibilities. They will leave it to somebody who does. He has another example from France here. He says, to look at the sigh of relief that went through all of France in 1852 when the empire was created, and then again in 1958 when a semi-authoritarian state gave Frenchmen the feeling that they would no longer have to make decisions for themselves, that these would now be made for them by others. So in conclusion, he says, the state, in various ways, by terror in Hitler's Germany, by political education in the Soviet Union, and here probably, neutralizes the masses. The state neutralizes the masses, forces them into passivity, throws them back on their private life and personal happiness, which actually, he says, provides them some necessary satisfaction on that level. I won't argue with that a bit. And they do this in order to leave a free hand to those who are in power, to the active, and to the militant. It's a great advantage to the state slash party slash ideology. And that is the end of the section. That is the end of the psychological effects of propaganda. The entire chapter in this book. Oh, there's more. Petty Stevie Nicks, probably my favorite duet ever. God, that's perfect. As close to perfect as you can get, anyway. See the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions a couple of months ago. Stevie Nicks was on there. She did this tune. I just wish Tom Petty were still around. That would have been so, so cool. Just a perfect song. Can't help but tap your foot to this stuff, man.
listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast, escapingthecave.com, also at ChristopherMedia.net. Make sure you check out the website over there. For all your podcast needs, Sporgy, Unregimented, all of them, they're great. Seriously, this may be the perfect song. I'm not, I mean it. Need a good palate cleansing, as Chris likes to call it, after that last uh, segment. Anyway, two minutes of Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. <sighs> so that ends the psychological effects of propaganda, as far as uh, Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda, goes. And I had a pretty good uh, conversation just before I came in here to record tonight with Matt on Facebook uh, about uh, propaganda and its similarities to addiction. He understands addiction. I have an alcoholic uh, background. (laughs) We understand these things. We understand about things like addiction triggers, like things that will send you off, right? And I, I equated that because I think this is, in some way, on some level, an addiction situation. I don't know if it's the dopamine. I don't know what it is, but there is a definite parallel between these uh, triggers like the addiction triggers and the condition reflex of propaganda. It trains you to do a certain thing, and it trains you to react a certain way because you're getting something you either want or need from it. The action. We're not that dissimilar from those those mice in the cage that are getting like a heroin fix when they eat their pellet. And for me, smoking was the big one, which I've now resumed again. But when I did manage to quit, that was the hardest part of it, was getting rid of the mental addiction, which what that boils down to is the conditioned reflex, right? You get out of bed. You want to go outside and smoke a cigarette. You get in the car. You get the car moving. You light a cigarette as you're driving down the road. That was a big one for me, obviously, after eating. And I've recently, not recently, but I've started smoking again, trying to quit again, and that, again, is the hardest part. It's getting rid of the habit the conditioned reflex, retraining your mind not to react and go outside and smoke a cigarette. It's the same thing, I think, with propaganda. And he said for him, for his addiction, he had to remove everybody in his life that was sort of an addiction trigger, the enablers, right? And I agreed with him. I mean, getting rid of the people, I guess back in this context, bringing it back to propaganda, you pretty much have to get rid of everything that is triggering the conditioned reflex or else you're going to fall right back into it it's like going out with your buddies you know what i mean you go hop let's go drive around you wind up back at the bar drunk at 3 a.m again just like you used to because you encourage each other in the behavior and the problem with propaganda and the propaganda that's online and on the social media networks particularly facebook i won't speak for twitter is these conversations that he and i are having because There are positive elements to social media. And these things are inseparable, it seems, from the disease itself. Because you can't control what everybody else is doing. You have no control over that. And you don't don't have any, any, any moral platform to tell people what they can and cannot put on the internet. But if it's triggering this conditioned response, if their conditioned response is triggering your conditioned response, what do you have? You've got an addiction situation that you have to manage and you have to maintain. And it boils down to, I think in the end, 
Am I willing to give up everyone I'm in touch with, all of my online contacts, in order to not be part of the problem that's endemic anyway? And of course, the collective answer is going to be no. Not to mention all the psychological withdrawal effects on top of all this. You get rid of your propaganda stream I talked about in the last episode. Everything you're going to have to go through beyond just this, this quote-unquote social integration part of, of being online and being in the echo chamber, being in your social group. You've got to get rid of all that. You've got to ostracize yourself from everyone that you associate with online and then add to it the psychological withdrawal effects of taking yourself completely just quitting propaganda cold turkey. Who's going to go through that? Now, I ask again, man, in all honesty, why would anyone go through all of that? Why would they go through that before the effects hit close enough to home, intensely enough, rock bottom, where they actually have to force themselves to change? And those effects, that rock bottom, is going to be a collective thing. Convinced of it. I, I am really, beyond that, I am struggling mightily to find an answer here. Alul put forth in the book that propaganda, mass media, and democracy are inseparable. I haven't gotten to that part yet, but he did. It's in there. And that in the uh, propaganda battle, like if you've got binary, conflicting, battling, warring propagandas going at each other, the side that abstains will lose. If you have one side engaging in it, you have to have the other side or else they're just going to get steamrolled. There's no solution here. You can't just cut it off. You can't just cut the cord to everybody. You can't just legislate it away. I don't know. You can't do it anyway. But even if you could, then you're going to have a country in a state of psychosis because they've lost their bearing. You can't have one side get rid of it because they'd just be steamrolled by the other side doing it. You can't let one side sort of heighten and raise their game without the other side doing it because the same thing will happen. What are people supposed to do? What's the answer? I cannot find it. One thing about this is that he wrote way too early to really factor in this kind of premature exposure to technology that we are unprepared to handle responsibly. The stuff that I was talking about in the, uh, in the open and how it encourages this drunken indulgence in agitation propaganda and the correlated and wanted, wanted, divisive hate reflex that comes from the agitation stuff. We want this. It's in our blood. You cannot sit there with a straight fucking face and tell me we don't. It's obvious. The ape needs to show its fucking teeth. He did not write about that. He could not write about this kind of technology, let alone where any of this stuff leads. And I, I'm going to say this one more time. It probably shocked your ears when I said it in the open. Fuck climate change. This is a bigger problem. The earth will adjust. The earth will adapt. This is a bigger threat to us right now. I read Nicholas Carr back in uh, 2017. He's got a, a very, very good, uh, incredible book called The Shallows. It's a few years old. It's almost a decade old now, I think. But it was a book that he wrote that started to investigate and talk about the physical effects 
of too much time online, being too connected to technology, what that does and how it changes your brain, how you get addicted to it, how it actually affects the way you physically think. The neuroplasticity of your brain works against you. You get used to it and you cannot function efficiently without it after, after a period of time. It's repairable. Your brain works both ways. I mean, if, you're, if neuroplasticity works to adapt to the technology, it will also readapt when the technology goes away and relatively quickly. There is hope down that line. But I think there's got to be a synthesis here between Alul's study on propaganda, the psychological effects of propaganda, propaganda proper, and there has to be a, th- a synthesis with the technology. There has to be a lot more to this because none, none of this, it talks about the mass media. It talks about over-the-air radio and television. You know, you're walking over to your big your console TV set and changing the channel by hand from channel 7 to channel 10. Talks about that. Maybe getting your AM radio back in the day. And your newspaper delivered to your house every day. But the, when I talk about how memes have become the new propaganda poster, He had no concept of how you could have however many people you're connected to. A lot of people have thousands, tens of thousands of people that they're connected to via Twitter and Facebook. And having these memes come in via both channels, being able to find one and click retweet and click share and have it go out to thousands of other people. Can you imagine Goebbels being able to do that with his propaganda posters back in the 30s. That's what we're dealing with here. There is no precedent to this. We have no idea where this is going. We are only seeing the very, very, very beginning of the consequences of this blind, headlong rush into a technology we do not understand. Social media has been around for 10 years. The internet has been around for a blink of an eye. What, 25-ish, right? I'd love to know when each and every one of you first got online. I would have loved to have known you then. I would like to reconnect with myself back in 1997. We don't have any idea. But 20 years now, 25 years 10 years of social media, we're we're going to start to see the effects of this. I think there's going to be studies. I think there's going to be books that are coming out on this. Eventually, it's going to be the negative effects are going to get to the point where they're going to have to start studying this stuff. But not yet. Nobody seems to be really delving into it. The synthesis of propaganda and technology and how that affects people. I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to dig through Carr again. And I may end up doing something like what I'm doing with uh, propaganda. I may be doing that with The Shallows at some point. That book had a huge effect on me and how I was consuming the internet. And it really helped with the digital detox stuff at that point in time. And I've got to finish this up and I've got to figure out how to synthesize these things. But I think that's probably going to be where I'm going. If not next, real soon. I, I think Bernays, probably as far as advertising goes. And speaking of synthesis, how advertising and propaganda work hand in hand. But you can't fix anything unless you ask the right questions. Even if it could be, even if it is possible, and I'm not sure it is. Even if it is, it's impossible if you do not ask the right questions and you do not understand what it is you're dealing with. And also, how do you prepare? Even if you are in a triage situation, 
How do you prepare and put yourself in an effective triage situation if you don't know what you're dealing with? How do you protect yourself? How do you see the tsunami rolling in if you don't have your eyes on the sea? I strongly suspect when I moved a car and my little dystopian opus, it's going to get even darker, if you can believe that. One thing that Alul echoes is uh, it's the people. It's a hashtag I've been using for a couple of years now. It's the people. There's elements of that in this book. Stresses over and over that it's wrong-headed to embrace this sort of conspiracy theorist's role of the innocent victim. I'm in an innocent victim. By blaming the propagandist and his industry alone. You know, it's the equivalent of blaming the bartender for your drinking problem. I'm going to repeat this. I've said this before. And after the realization that there's a problem, then at some point you are responsible for your life and your mind. These things become your responsibility to maintain. Once you understand that there's a problem, if you're still listening to this podcast, I assume you're there. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I have to ask myself the same fucking question. I hope you're not hearing that as me preaching from the pulpit, but that is, it's a valid question. We all have to ask that question. I'm having a really hard time with this. I don't know how to extract the good from the bad. I don't know how to separate them. There may not be a way to do that. And what if there's not? Then what? And then we got to talking about like information, like just reading headlines, trying to stay sort of tuned in, and the difference between that and going in and reading what is actually in the article or the opinion or the analysis, right? Elul gets into this too. Got a little very simply titled section in the book called Information. How propaganda and information go hand in hand, and it's not how you think. If you have a concept that propaganda is a bold-faced lie and tall tales, you are susceptible. You are incredibly vulnerable to this shit. It's not lies. It's not making shit up out of thin air. Now, sometimes it can be, but most often, (laughs) it's not. And information plays a role in this and not a good one. He says that informed opinions... Right? Actually help the propagandist. It makes a lot of sense if you, if you really, really think about it because where are you getting the opinions from? If you have an opinion or you have an ideological bent, where are you getting your opinions from? Do you think you're getting it from neutral sources? And if you are getting it from neutral sources, it doesn't matter because the neutral information can then be spun. Maybe the source you're getting it from, maybe it's pure, maybe it's pristine virginal not after Goebbels gets his hands on it and you'll think it's fact because Goebbels will take that pristine and virginal information and ravage it and you will have read it before and you will have seen it before it'll ring true because you've read that pristine virginal information and don't realize that it's being twisted and you're being exploited this is why the informed opinion isn't much help. Not to mention, not to mention these informed opinions typically aren't yours. It doesn't have anything to do with originally crafted critical thought. The word informed typically doesn't have anything to do with originally crafted opinions via critical thought. They're typically going back to the insemination thing. 
Even naked information is an asset to the propagandist. I only listen to facts, do you? Yeah. What are they doing with those facts? <laughs> it's not a rabbit's hole. It's a, it's a hornet's nest. In the informed opinion, just because you can recite a farewell to arms does not make you Hemingway. Makes you Emerson's retained attorney reciting something you've seen before, like a precedent. A cognitive precedent. Someone wrote before you. You just take it, grab it, parrot it. I'm informed. Mm. In a weird way, Jacques Ellul has been, uh, he's reminded me a little bit of Andrew Sullivan, maybe Noam Chomsky, a little bit. Uh, Chris Hitchens. Some of my favorite authors. I still like Chomsky. I love the way Chomsky thinks. I love the way Hitchens thought. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Andrew Sullivan. But all three of these guys have a way of getting to the point. They have a way of digging deeper, getting closer to the core of the problem, which hardly anybody does anymore. Nobody really wants to get to the core, has the balls or the guts to get to the real core of the problem from any sort of social issue up. These three, I've always appreciated their writing because of that, and Alul... To me, I think that's why I really appreciate this book because it gets down to the core. It starts, it, it doesn't candy coat anything. It's you just as much as them, he says. Because you need it, you want it. You're, who the fuck is going to tell anybody that these days, right? And he does. That's why I appreciate this. And maybe, I guess, if there even is one, maybe the solution for us probably or perhaps, lies in eliminating exposure to the outrage industrial complex. And they're little puppets. They're little puppets in their conditioned reflexes of the moment. Getting out, you know, of the contrived news cycle. Because the outrages aren't outrages. They really aren't. They're conditioned reflexes. If they were outrages... If they were really outrage-worthy, these individuals would have been outraged individually before they were poked and prodded to action as a group or a mob. This is why nobody was complaining about all of these things that you see as these cultural web issues 10, 15 years ago, because nobody was outraged. Nobody was provoked to be outraged by them. There wasn't a group mind, a mob mentality, a hive mind. They weren't feeding off each other. I'm I'm outraged too, then. Yeah, there's some truth involved to most of this stuff. Sure, but they're blasted out of proportion, turned up to 11 when maybe they should be at 2 where they were 10 years ago. That is the, the fingerprint, the hallmark of agitation propaganda, of just propaganda, period. And your only salvation, the only solution, we've got to vote for this person because it's a political problem and our destiny is tied to the political process uh, and our religion. Our religion is going to take us to heaven. Uh. Good luck. Good luck navigating that. But for individuals, and that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a collective (laughs) saving grace. You know, come to Jesus for the entire culture. That isn't what we're dealing with here. That is not going to happen. This is a case-by-case basis. It reminds me, the, the Matrix is taking on a very new meaning for me, a very special new Uh, apt metaphorical meaning now reading this stuff has changed how i've seen that movie 
And it may be more applicable now because of the internet. But what we're talking about is an individual situation. It's like Morpheus going back into the Matrix from the Nebuchadnezzar, right? He doesn't go in and start giving everybody the red pill. He has to select people who have already got the splinter in the mind. That already know something's wrong. That have an indication. Maybe they don't know what it is, but they know something is fucking amiss. You have to do it on a case-by-case basis. Because most people, when you start talking about this stuff, can you imagine you walk up to some random dude on the street, some random Trump supporter, and you start talking about propaganda, his propaganda. Or you I go to a moveon.org meeting, start telling those fuckers, yeah, you know, no, this is what we, we figured out. and They're going to be like, fuck you, Trump bot. There's no cultural movement coming. There is no cultural awakening coming. There's no solving this problem for a myriad of reasons. According to him, democracy, mass media, and propaganda are inseparable. Those three things will go together. Mass media and democracy equals propaganda. There's no getting around that. If there's no getting around that, there's no getting rid of this technology. There's no walking the technology back. We don't deprogress, <laughs> right? And then this is a, this is an out of control locomotive. Do you see any indications that some enlightenment is coming? Some introspection, self awareness, as far as our use of the technology and our dissemination of, of recycled propaganda? Do you see that anywhere? Do you see one indication of that anywhere? If you do, I would love to see it. I would love to see your work. So. If that's the case, we have to think individually. We've got to think about ourselves and what we can do for ourselves for, well, you have kids, I don't. How you can arm your children against this. How you can teach your children to deal with this. Because if you have young kids, I know a couple of you guys do, what are you going to do when your your kid gets out in the real world? Is your child going to be immunized to this or at least aware of it in some way so they can actually protect themselves? Or are they just going to be thrown out to the wolves? That's the only thing we can do here, kids. The metaphor for the Matrix really works a lot better than how I saw it before. I I used to see the Matrix as just this metaphor for society in general. The facade of society now. Now, not, not, Not anymore. It's more of a literal thing now. It's an actual, you know, the matrix is cyberspace. It's the, the how we see and how we interpret our virtual reality through these echo chambers and through our media streams, through our propaganda. We're creating a virtual construct of how we want the world to appear to our virtual avatars. There's no tethering to reality here. When you, you take a guy in El Paso, horrific as that was, as horrific as that act was, and you take one guy and you start painting an entire segment of the country a certain way because of what one dude did, you're not tethered to reality. And again, I'm guilty here when I start you know, painting all women or all feminists a certain way because of what a couple of neo-feminists said. I'm not being fair either, but I do it. This is the Matrix. This is creating a virtual reality, a virtual uh, representation of the world that we see in our own heads, and it's so easy to fucking do with this tech. 
and having people reinforce it all the time. So, what do you do? What do you do? You've got to pretty much figure out a way to keep yourself from being affected, keep yourself from being provoked, keep yourself isolated away from the outrage industrial complex. And they're outrageous. Unless you actually like being agitated. Lynn, you, you're angry? I'm angry! I have never been this angry in my entire life! I feel great. I love being angry. <laughs> Run and stimpy. <laughs> happy, happy, joy, joy. I like being angry. A lot of people do like being angry, don't they? A lot of people absolutely love it. I'm going to do something with this Matrix thing, I think. I think I've decided to do that because I have a, I have a lot of material here. Take your shot. I had a bunch of stuff here, though, and I, a lot more on that. And I think this uh, solitary dude thing that I've been kind of threatening you with for a while, the narratives thing, I think this all ties into that stuff somehow. I'll get to that at some point, but I'm not done with propaganda yet. There's, there's much more. I told you about the information stuff, propaganda's effects on democracy, ideology, the characteristics of propaganda. Did you know information and propaganda are pretty much indistinguishable? Good times. You've taken the red pill now. Too late. Welcome to my spaceship. At escapingthecave.com, also ChristopherMedia.net. And check out the shows over there. Seriously, do it. Some good stuff. Give Chris some love. It's went all right. Now, hopefully, I'll get sick in peace. If you don't hear from me for a few days, <laughs> you know why. Thanks for tuning in. These are not easy to digest. I understand that. Hopefully they're making you think. And uh, I do appreciate the patronage. So, until next time, so long. Have a good one. <laughs>